This episode of the Black Arts Legacies podcast is sponsored by Meta. This is your space to hone in on whatever your passion for the arts is. This is Jasmine Scott telling me about the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute. It's a 50-year-old cultural center that also happens to be the oldest Black performing arts center in Seattle. Seeing its importance in the lives of multiple generations of Black Seattle, it just felt right to start the Black Arts Legacies podcast here. And so, are you a theater director? Are you a playwright? Well, come here and work that out. And we'll give you the space so that you can work on your play, develop that, and then here, come do a staged reading. And then we're going to work with you to actually mount the full production, right? You want to have a dance performance, you're a choreographer, great, then here's here's the stage for you to be able to do that. And we're going to give you some rehearsal space. You know what I'm saying? Langston belongs to the community, and we're continuing that legacy because it's literally the legacy that was embedded, you know, when I was there, certainly before I was there. And we want to make sure that that continues for like years to come. Jasmine has a long history with the Institute, which we'll get into. But back when we spoke, she was in a leadership role as director of programs and partnerships. Now he's one of those theater folks Jasmine was talking about, Sharon Williams. It was really, really great to have that first major gig at a institution that uplifted Black arts and culture. Sharon currently works as executive director of the CD Forum, which operates out of the Langston Hughes building. But back around 2005, Sharon first came to the Institute, leaping from a production internship at the Seattle Repertory Theater into stage managing for the all-teen summer musical, which was something new for her. And it was like family. It was like I loved driving in every day and I loved it when I got there. We would stay there all times of the day and then do it all over again and again. That first all-teen summer musical gig did a lot for Sharon and was the beginning of years managing productions at Langston. And for my first gig to be around a program that had over 100 Black youth um, in the building and just being in this hub of Blackness in Seattle was really, really inspiring because <laughs> it was like, I felt like I was back at my my college because I went to a historically Black college, um, Delaware State University. And it was like, yo, I'm back at Dell State because this is all Black all the time. So it felt really, really good. And then from there, it just kept um, project after project. So I feel as though Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute and me becoming a production stage manager was the start, in addition to the internship, of my career of learning what it meant to be an artist and work in arts in Seattle to where I could accept a position as an executive director for Central District Forum for Arts and Ideas. We'll hear more from Sharon, but Langston Hughes cultivates Black brilliance both in developing artists and giving them space for authentic expression. Sharon brought dancer and choreographer Jade Solomon Curtis into that space from the local art scene. She actually played a pretty integral and pivotal role in my career, my life here in Seattle. Um, I had been dancing for Donald Byrd maybe for about two years at this point. Um, and she asked if I would 
be interested in choreographing for Showing Out. And I believe this Showing is Out is a showcase year. of local Black dancers and choreographers at Langston Hughes each year. And there were a couple of artists involved, one of which I, I really remember, Danny Terrell, who no longer lives here, but still has a significant influence on just Black arts and Black arts culture. Um, inclusivity within the Black community, it, within the artist, um, and highlighting local Black artists, right? Because oftentimes we import <laughs> Black arts into Seattle to have that experience and not necessarily um, provide access and a platform for the Black artists that already live here. So participating and showing out um, really helped with that visibility um, and I think also helped with the community um, in terms of them understanding like who are the local Black artists, whether it's dance, because this specifically focused on choreography or whatever medium. Um, but so Sharon Williams played a significant role in that uh, for me. And then, you know, so I did showing out twice. I did it for a second time in 2016. That um, opportunity was really pivotal for me uh, because I was rehearsing at Langston Hughes. It was um, one of the few spaces where I felt comfortable stepping into and owning whatever space I was in and creating the world that I was interested in creating in this particular work, um, which was Black Like Me. But Langston Hughes definitely supported that. Uh, and also, I, I feel like there weren't many spaces where I felt comfortable um, exploring this particular subject matter uh, without feeling like kind of like the white gaze, right? Um, mm -hmm. Impacting the kind of work that you're doing or rather making it more digestible. Brooklyn, and this is the Black Arts Legacies podcast, a show from Crosscut exploring the history and ongoing impact of Black art and artists in Seattle. This is part of a huge multimedia effort that I'll get into more later. But for now, just know that the entire project is about both what once was and what continues on, because that's really what legacy is. The seeds planted in the past and all that grows out of them long after. For this first season of the podcast, I want to focus on the soil the spaces, homes, and halls Black Seattle has built to foster generations of community and creativity. Earlier this year, when I first got to Seattle, I wasn't even sure there were Black people out here. And admittedly, there aren't a whole lot. The last census came up with Seattle as less than 7% Black. But as I have learned along the way, where there's Black community, amazing things keep happening. Sometimes it takes a little digging to find them, but after looking for a little while, I'm excited to share some of what I found. I'm starting off with a hundred year old building that was first a synagogue and is now celebrating 50 years of cultivating black art, the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute. From many conversations, I've learned that Langston Hughes means a lot of different things to a lot of people because his work isn't limited to one type of performing art or even to just arts. Langston serves Seattle's black community in a multitude of ways even as that community has been displaced across King and Pierce County. And, from what I've heard, Langston Hughes hopes to see at least another 50 years doing that work. But before we look towards Langston Hughes' present and future, it's time for a history lesson. In 1966, America was 11 years into the Vietnam War and two years into LBJ's War on Poverty, 
While Martin Luther King was fighting the racist roots of poverty in Chicago, the Department of Housing and Urban Development was fighting urban poverty in cities across the country. Our story begins right there in 1960s Seattle. Okay, so boom, we are good to go. That's Keith Tucker. He's executive director of an awesome organization called Hip Hop is Green, which is all about using hip hop to promote health for young people. I grew up in the central area, obviously, in Seattle. I was born uh, in the mid-60s, long time ago. You know, it was a segregated area where, you know, you had a lot of black folks. And when I say segregated, it was redlined. That's what they, you know, that's what they call it now. But when I grew up in Seattle... I had a wonderful experience in the black community um, here, um, not knowing all of the different economic um, and programs that the city had to keep us in that area. You know, I was totally insulated from that when I was a kid. Yep, Keith's been in the Central District since the 60s. I spoke to him after Langston's current executive director, Tim Lennon, told me that Keith's dad, Jeff Tucker, was instrumental in converting the old synagogue into a black art space. I guess there was a racial reckoning back in those times as well, because they created a program for inner city youth. And that program was called the Model Cities Program. Okay. And they wanted to put money into urban areas because of uh, poverty and the situations that black communities face, um, partly because the system was not financially equal <laughs> for black folks in the first place. So this was the first time that I could remember studying history right, that the American government actually took some money and said, let's invest it in um, Black communities. Well, there was the Works Project Administration, the WPA, back during the New Deal. It didn't fund Black communities and workers equal to white communities, but it did employ hundreds of thousands of Black people, including many artists. So in Seattle, my father, Jeff Tucker, was working uh, for the Model Cities program in Seattle, okay, with Judge Johnson. And Judge Johnson really was his boss. Judge Charles V. Johnson was a huge Seattle activist, and I'll let him speak for himself. This is an interview with Johnson from the Seattle Civil Rights and Labor History Project at the University of Washington. Model Cities was a big, big shot in the arm from not only from a community standpoint of view, but from a civil rights standpoint of view. Because, see, I was still working with the uh, Central Area Committee for Civil Rights while I chaired Model Cities. So I was chairman of Model Cities and also working with, with NAACP and the Central Area Committee for Civil Rights. And as Model Cities grew, uh, we made sure that Model Cities and everything we did was totally integrated. And all, when funds were used, they were being used so that we could integrate and desegregate wherever the tentacles of model cities went out. And Judge Johnson told my father, and I think my father was in his 20s at that time, maybe 23, 24, he was a young guy. And this is the story. Judge Johnson told my father, hey, we have these funds. We want to create some programs for inner city youth um, that where they can use their talents um, and creative talents as an outlet. And at that time, my father uh, was into theater. 
and he wanted to be an actor himself and he was studying to become an actor. He ended up moving to New York to pursue that. But I guess that must have influenced him to come up with the idea of creating a performance arts theater here for youth as an outlet for them. Um, the arts is a, uh, is a very creative um, and wonderful program um, and an outlet for black people. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, it was a, a really great idea he came up with. So he uh, um, wrote the business plan and strategy for it. Jeff Tucker wasn't alone. The effort was led by a man named Walter Hunley, who was the director of the Central Area Motivation Program, a program we'll get into more later this season. Um, and, and the main key component to that was the synagogue there uh, off of Yesler um, at the time. Because what, what was happening is, um, you know, in the Black community, there was a lot of Jewish people in the Black community, and they were, they were moving out of the black community at that point. Um, they were moving out to Seward Park, Bellevue, other places like that. And um, he negotiated with the rabbis at that synagogue for the city of Seattle and the Model Cities program to purchase the building or the Performance Arts Center. So um, he was successful in uh, negotiating with rabbis to, to get that building put there and, and institute the program. Um, and, you know, it's been going on ever since. So, you know, that's that's just kind of how the formation of Langston happened. Um, the city of Seattle was put in there um, to help run Langston. And so that's how the city, um, you know, got in, involved in it um, because of the Model Cities program and all that stuff and to make sure to ensure that there was funding to, you know, keep the program going um, for decades, which, you know, it actually has been been doing that. So that was a good thing. And what about the name Lakes and Hughes? Well, part of establishing the building as a black space was naming it after a black person. The city sought community input and ended up having three choices, either the Du Bois Dome, the Paul Robeson Cultural Center, or the Langston Hughes Cultural Center. They settled on the Black poet and writer for the namesake. Though Langston Hughes wasn't from the community, he had been here several times to speak. And what about Keith's father? And so he moved into working with different arts organizations because he was good at that. You know what I mean? And so just like he was good at forming Langston Hughes, he kept that going and ended up managing different. He managed a ballet company. He ended up moving from New York uh, to Oakland and managed the Oakland Ballet Company for a while. Um, he ended up going back to school and uh, uh, doing that. And he ended up being a professor. You know, he ended up being an educator. Now you know how the building went from a synagogue to a black art space, but the story of how Langston Hughes became what it is today is far from over. Stay tuned. Meta is proud to be the title sponsor for the Black Arts Legacies Project. Meta builds technologies that help billions of people around the world connect, find communities, and grow businesses. With apps like Facebook, Instagram, Messenger, and WhatsApp, they're able to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. To learn more, 
go to meta.com. Support for the Black Arts Legacies podcast comes from BECU, a member-owned credit union that puts people over profit. For over 85 years, BECU has offered financial services and support to the community. Members have access to local financial centers, over 30,000 ATMs through the co-op network, and online resources. Learn more at BECU.org. Federally insured by NCUA. Langston Hughes needed artists and audiences. Edna DeGray was one of those early artists. She's been a Seattle dance teacher and icon since she moved here in the 70s. But back in the 80s, she was looking for somewhere to hold performances. Langston Hughes goes way back, uh, almost when they started. And I was looking back to see what year that was. And I couldn't go back that far with all my notes. But it was one of the places that my business, I had a studio called Awajo, and we opened in 1970. I started Wajo in 1974, and it was called a Wajo uh, Dance Workshop at that time. We started just as a small studio in the Wallingford District, and uh, it got to the point where we wanted to do some performing. So we looked for a performing outlet. And at that time, I was uh, introduced to Langston Hughes, and it's been so long, I forgot the person who was in charge, a, a group of people who were in charge. That was maybe about the only outlet for African-American performers at that time. And we started, I started doing more of the performance more towards the 80s, you know, because they had a lot of work to do there. And of course, it's a tremendous improvement for today, you know, when you go over there. But that was about the only outlet that I could think of at that time, except that, you know, we were doing some performance in the public schools. And it was such a nice space to work in. And it didn't have all of the uh, great lighting and so forth. So that's um, something that was done over a period of time with a lot of fundraising and a lot of uh, community cooperation. But at that time, and for many months and years after that, it was the only outlet for uh, African-American performances. And I have to say, Awajo performances at Langston sound really fun. Edna told me they were a mix of any and all types of African dances, and that they were both educational and interactive. The audience was really diverse, and uh, and I think it was good because uh, Seattle is predominantly white. It's a lot of white people. They really support the Black arts, especially during that time, because it was sort of new to them, and they were interested in learning more about, you know, uh, the cultural and the uh, music, the dance. Uh, they were very interested. And we pulled in a lot because we always got the audience involved. So at the end of the performance, we brought them on stage and they were able to, you know, really perform, you know, it's called in the moment performance. And they felt really good. Now we're going to bounce forward from the 80s to Jasmine in the 90s. We heard a little from Jasmine at the very beginning as director of programs and partnerships at Langston, but Jasmine and Langston Hughes go way back. And then throughout high school, actually middle school and throughout high school, um, I started working there. And so um, it was actually my first job. Langston Hughes was my first job. Further back than that even, she couldn't remember exactly how young she was when it all began, only that she was a kid deeply intrigued by art. 
I don't know the exact year. I was really young. I mean, it started when I was a school age kid. They used to do, you know, uh, after school programs there and summer programs and things like that. You have to wonder what about Langston Hughes could keep young kids, middle schoolers and high schoolers all engaged. Um, and there was always something for me to do. There was something for my friends to do. He Jasmine gives a lot of credit for this to the leadership of Steve Sneed. He directed Langston back when she was coming up. He was really great at finding ways to engage young people's creativity. Um, so people, young people that would come through and weren't really participating in anything in particular, he'd find out what they were interested in. So not every kid is interested in performing, but perhaps you're interested in some back-end things. And so why don't we teach you how to be a stage manager? Why don't we teach you how to run sound or lights or different things like that? So he really knew how to bring us in and um, have us engaged in so many different ways. And so you know, I was able to do that. And then just working there, I learned how to be a young professional. I worked there through my teens and then kind of went on about my life, but was always able to be uh, someone that they could call on. So this next step takes a little context. As Keith said earlier, the city of Seattle, specifically the Parks Department, ran Lexington Hughes from the beginning. Eventually, it was taken over by the city's Office of Arts and Culture. And with that came a lot of rethinking how Langston Hughes would operate going forward. Uh, in around 2013, up until 2016, when they were working on this transition for Langston, for the programming to come out of the hands of the city. The facility is now operated by the Office of Arts and Culture versus the Parks Department. And um, the Office of Arts and Culture decided that it made much more sense for the programming to be community-led instead of it being something that the city leads, especially since it's a really unique and cultural space. The city doesn't really have the capacity or the wherewithal, quite frankly, to run a cultural space in a really meaningful way. Out of this came a nonprofit called Langston, which guides programming at the Institute. And Langston itself needed someone to run those programs. I made sure I was there and, and interviewed with the board and, you know, basically told them who else is going to do this better than me. <laughs> you know, I mean, just kind of going down that history like I've just shared with you and, and really just talking about how special that place is to me and so many other people and um, you know, the connection and what I believe, what my vision for the organization is. And, you know, I was just like, I don't really know who else you would choose besides me. And so I feel like they made the right choice and uh, brought me on. And so I started the work of the organization in late 2016, and I've been here ever since. I've called it like my full circle moment from being engaged at such a young, young age, having that be my first job and then coming back so many years later to actually um, help shape what this new nonprofit is. That's not the only talk of full circle moments that I've heard. Keith told me he felt that in 2015, hosting a Hip Hop is Green event there for the first time in the space his father helped create. Sharon, who earlier told us about managing productions at Langston Hughes for years before her current position as executive director of the CD Forum, had one of those too. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it was this 360 thing, right? So it was really crazy that um, around 2005, I was a production stage manager 
And then I was with Langston for, I can't remember how many years. And then I left and went to Seattle University for about four years. And then I came back to run Central District Forum, which was down the street um, at um, Yeshler and 14th in an office building there. And then um, a few years later, after I took over running CD Forum, then the city started talking about the transition of Langston going from a programming arm to managing the building. And then they asked me to come back to the building um, with CD Forum and be the fiscal sponsor for the All Teen Summer Musical and help do programming. And so it was like, I'm back in a different capacity, but I came in the first time through the All Teen Summer Musical and I came back through the All Teen Summer Musical years later and now I'm still there. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's a whirlwind. But the thing is, Langston, the building and community hub, was not the only thing in transition. Gentrification and displacement have complicated what we even mean when we talk about the community, the Central District, and Black Seattle. So I'm left wondering, who does Langston serve and what is its role in today's Central District? The neighborhood's not like what it was when I was growing up. So like when I said, you know, I could just go and hang out and my friends were there and, you know, it was just a place. Kids aren't here. I still live in the neighborhood. There's not the the same demographic of young people that were like right in that kind of few block radius in the 90s does not exist anymore. A lot of times they're from South King County and even Pierce County and beyond. I have some numbers on that displacement from the Seattle Times a few years ago. As of 2014, the Central District was 18% Black. Back in Jasmine's day in 1990, it was 55% Black. And that's down from 64% Black in 1980 and 73% Black in 1970. And, you know, that's one of the things that we had to had to fight. Like, some people... That's Sharon again. And the fight she describes is for the future of Langston Hughes as a Black space when the Office of Arts and Culture sought community input and she participated in multiple committees and task forces fighting for it. And there was serious conversations of people in the room like, well, the community doesn't look the same, so Langston shouldn't still be about Black arts and culture, should it? It should be about what the community around it looks like. And I remember the frustration of those conversations on my behalf. And I remember we had to really make everybody at the table realize, even though that the neighborhood changed, that the entity was still as important because if you actually know about Black culture, and I remember bringing this up in the meeting, we don't go to necessarily the Black church that's in our neighborhood, right? We will drive um, an hour, 45 minutes, 30 minutes to the church that we want to go to. So I was like, so don't think that Black people won't drive in to, to come to Langston, no matter where they are. The church thing is true. I've spent a lot of Sunday mornings on long car rides to get to the church that my family has a history with. But to understand why Langston still anchors Black people to the Central District, even when they don't live there, you have to see it as more than just an arts and cultural space, or have a wider understanding 
of arts and culture. Sharon explained to me that we cannot silo arts and culture. She told me it's part of what makes us human, which ties it to every other aspect of our lives. Economic development, housing, education, everything. And, and that art isn't just about um, what we do at, in the building of Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute. Isn't just about entertainment. It's about social justice issues. It's about conversations. It's about bringing the community together and bridging those conversations. It's about how arts and culture plays a role in our everyday lives. Jade called it a refuge. Keith talked about feeling immense pride working with Langston now, seeing that his community-centered mission is still there. Jasmine expressed that she isn't trying to be a gatekeeper. She hopes her work at Langston will help it see another 50 years. Even as, not long after we talked, she left Langston to run a new Seattle arts nonprofit. This podcast is called Black Arts Legacies. Langston Hughes is 50 years old this year. The Central District is no longer a Black neighborhood. Each of these facts makes it easy to see all that Langston is and has been as part of the past. Don't do that. Sharon's CD Forum office is currently in Langston Hughes. Jasmine had to carve time for our conversation out of a busy schedule organizing this year's Seattle Black Film Festival. Keith told me he plans for Hip Hop is Green to do more with Langston as soon as this summer. Langston Hughes is still wildly important to Black people, even if it's a longer drive to get there. And for what I've heard, there's no intention of changing that. But don't take my word for it. I leave the last word to Jasmine and Jade. Like we are wrapping our arms around our community and saying we want to try to give you as much as what we can, you know, to meet your need. It's not always about events and performances, though that's a big part of what we do. You know, last year we gave out food boxes because people were dealing with all the difficulties of the pandemic. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and, and I think that's just a part of of how we navigate as Black people. Like, it's not just this, like, linear focus. We always want to make sure that we're taking care of each other wholly and fully. Yeah. How often is it that we as Black people are able to, or rather we ask ourselves, like, what do I need? And have a place to go to and get those needs met. While the legacy continues on, this episode of the Black Arts Legacies podcast has to wrap up. There's much more to the project, though, including videos of Sharon and Jade and a profile on Edna that you can check out at blackartslegacies.com. This episode was reported and produced by Brooklyn Jamerson Flowers, that's me, with additional reporting by Jasmine Mahmood and Kemi Adeyemi. The story editors are Sarah Bernard and Mark Bumgarden, who's also the executive producer. Audio support from Jonah Cohen. The University of Washington Collection supplied the audio of Judge Johnson. You can subscribe to Black Arts Legacies wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For more on Black Arts Legacies and other CrossCut podcasts, go to crosscut.com podcasts. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. 
And if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming from KCTS9, Seattle's PBS station. Black Arts Legacies is a product of Cascade Public Media. Next time, we're moving forward in time to an art space that's half the age of Langston Hughes, but definitely no less interesting or important. Bye, y'all.